0: Last time we left off in the middle of Ephesians chapter 4, well not quite in the middle, we left off right at verse 24, but it's important for us to understand a little bit of the context even from the very beginning of the book. Paul's main point at the beginning part of the book of Ephesians is to spell out with great majesty, with soaring and high thoughts, what Jesus Christ has done for us. Uh, what the Father has done for us, what the Son has done for us, what the Holy Spirit has done for us, about how we're blessed in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He talks about God's great and wise eternal plan, which he has ordained from the beginning of the ages, and how he's given you and I a place in that plan, uh, how he's going to, at the end of it all, sum up everything in Jesus Christ. He's told us about God's work of reconciliation and how his work of bringing Jew and Gentile together in one body is actually just a preview of this great and ultimate reconciliation that he will fulfill when this plan of of the ages is complete. And so after going on and on about the great standing, the great gifts, the great place he has given us in Jesus Christ, it's only after dealing with that in such a high and majestic way that starting in chapter 4, does Paul begin to speak to us about what we should do. Again, first, the foundation is undeniably what God has done for us, but then he wants to speak about us, to us about what we should do. And so first, in the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 4, he gives a call for unity among the people of God. And then he spends a section between verses 7 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 4, speaking about how God works this unity in the church and it's actually through the spiritual gifts of leadership that he gives to the church. And we talked about this all in some depth the last time we were together. But then starting at verse 17, he begins with even more pointed instruction on how the believer should live, especially using this idea of putting off the old man that is the old man that we inherited from Adam and was created according to the image of Adam, so to speak, and died with Christ when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And that we should put on the new man who is a new creation and created after the image of Jesus Christ. So he speaks to us about the character of the new man in verses 17, 18, and 19. He exhorts us to actually put on the new man in verses 20 through 24. And we spoke about that the last time we were together, how the figure is very much like putting on a new set of clothes. He's telling us to live like the new man, or I could say the new woman, that you actually are. This is what Jesus Christ has made you. Now go out and live like it. So continuing on that same train of thought, we come now to verse 25 where he says, Therefore, putting away lying... Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for remembers of one another. Now now I'm going to continue on, but I just want you to pause right there and notice the the, the transition with the word therefore. You can just think through this very logically. When he says, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, well, doesn't that just make sense? Uh, Lying, does that come from the old man or the new man? Well, it comes from the old man. So put away lying, just like you would put away the old man Put on the new man because the new man tells the truth. Do you see how Paul isn't just looking at us and saying, now you stop lying. You tell the truth. No, no, no. It's much more elevated than that. And this is what is wrong and frustrating in so many Christian lives today. They want to jump immediately to the instruction. Okay, pastor, tell me what to do. And then they want to hear, okay, now you stop lying. Well, no, 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 it doesn't go that simple. No, no. Before I can tell you what to do, you must first be a new creation in Jesus Christ. And then you have to put away the old, put on the new. Now you're in a place where you can put away lying and tell the truth because that's what the new man does. I want you to notice that, that in this whole idea of New Testament Christianity, our actions are to flow from what we are. Not from what we feel. Let's make a distinction between that. Not from what we feel, but from what we are And what we are has been told to us very carefully all the way since the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Anyway, back to verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So again, we can see the, the, the powerful logic that Paul presents to us in this letter. You're made a new man or a new woman. Therefore, put off the conduct that's associated with the old man and put on the conduct that's associated with the new man. So the new man tells the truth. And our motive for telling the truth, I love how he puts it here in verse 25, is that we're members one of another. Therefore, there is no place for lying. But when he says members one of another, you understand what he's getting at? He's drawing on the picture of a body, right? My my little finger is a member of the whole body. My elbow is a member of the whole body, a body part, so to speak. He's saying because you're part of the whole body, you have a responsibility to tell the truth one to another. Now, if your hand touches something very hot, but your hand lies to your brain and says, Oh, that's cool and nice. Your hand is not doing your brain a favor, is it? That flesh is going to sizzle until the nose smells the burning flesh and says it's time to move the hand away. I mean, the body is only going to work right if the members tell the truth about themselves to the rest of the body. That's why as Christians we should never be ashamed, we should never be reticent to say, I'm hurting, Can, can somebody pray for me? I have a need, can somebody minister? Or, by all means, I'm joyful, can somebody rejoice with me? I'm just happy about what Jesus Christ has done. It's just part of telling the truth one to another. And following on this same line in verse 26, he said, Be angry and do not sin. Now, the new man may get angry, but he doesn't sin. The new man knows how to let go of his wrath and thus give no opportunity to the devil, give no place to the devil, as it says there in verse 27. And so the the devil's work is to accuse and to divide the family of God, to, to sow dissension among them. When we harbor anger in our hearts, we're doing the devil's work for him. You're doing it for him, you're furthering his cause. Do you understand when Paul writes there in verse 27, nor give place to the devil, that that word devil actually has a meaning. It's not a name. His name isn't Mr. Devil, or that's not how he gets his mail addressed at home or whatever. Devil is a title that means slanderer. And Paul may be saying here that when we hold on to our anger, when it creates bitterness, we give place to the slanderer. Uh, Perhaps we become the slanderer or or we provoke other people to slander. But but don't do it. Give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to slander. Verse 28 tells us more about about the conduct of the new man. Let him who stole steal no longer. Isn't that evident? The new man doesn't steal. But but he works with his hands. And why does the new man work with his hands? Not only to provide for his own needs. This is beautiful. It, It says right there in verse 28 that he may have something to give him who has need. Isn't that wonderful? That's why you're supposed to work. Not just for yourself, not just for your family. The man looks around and goes, well, I provide for myself and I provide for my family. Isn't that enough? And God says, no. You should work enough to where you have enough to to give to others too because that's part of what you should be doing with your labor. I want to point something out here too in verse 28 where he says, let him who steal no longer, but rather let him labor. The ancient Greek word that's translated labor in that sentence means literally to exert himself to the point of exhaustion. This is the kind of working that God commands those who used to steal to have. Now, if you used to be a thief and then you want to go out and start making a living, you probably don't want to go out and do the hardest work you can, right? You probably have a lazy streak in you and that's why you took the stealing to begin with. Paul says, no, 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 no. If you stole, not only should you get to work, you should do hard labor. You should work hard to the point of exhaustion. And then you should work so that you can give. The the, the purpose for getting becomes giving. Going on in verse 29, more of the conduct of the new man. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. The, The new man knows how to watch his tongue. He only speaks what is necessary, or excuse me, what is good for necessary edification, desiring to impart grace to all who hear him. i tell you what, isn't that beautiful? If you could revolutionize the life of the Christian community, of any particular church in one way, just let Ephesians 4.29 become a fact in that congregation. I mean, think of what, that would be glory, wouldn't it? We'd think we were in the millennial kingdom if that happened. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do you realize that what you say can impart grace to other people? You can be a dispenser of grace. You can go out and give grace to other people by what you say to them. And that's what the new man does. And then he goes on here, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The new man doesn't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. He knows that the Holy Spirit is our seal, both in the sense that he identifies us and he protects us. You know, it's so easy for us to grieve the Holy Spirit. You wonder how the Holy Spirit gets grieved. I don't know. I think probably the Holy Spirit gets grieved when he sees us neglect our Bibles. The Holy Spirit gets grieved when he sees us neglect prayer. He, he gets grieved when he sees that we love worldly things better than we love him. And you got to say, that's really a painful idea, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit, who loves you, has been given to you, who is a seal and a sign for you, that he has been given upon you, and you grieve him. Can I just say, what has the Holy Spirit ever done wrong to you? What has the Holy Spirit ever done to deserve that you would grieve Him, that you would sorrow Him? And when we think about it, we think this is, this is painful to think that we could actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But I would say this, even though the word grief is painful to hear, you might say, and Charles Spurgeon said this, this is a wonderful phrase, he says, there's honey in the rock, because it's a delightful thought that He who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and is the infinite and ever-blessed God condescends to enter into such infinite relationships with his people that his divine mind may be affected by their actions I I, I mean the mere fact that God would grieve over us shows how tender his heart is it shows how much he cares about us you know if I don't love somebody if I don't care about them if they do something to offend me I, I don't care what do I care about you you mean nothing to me I don't care what you say about me. I don't care what you don't do. You mean nothing to me. Get away from me. It's like saying that the ant on the ground or the fly could grieve me. It just doesn't happen that way, does it? And if it did grieve me, what would I do? I'd just smash it. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit is legitimately grieved when we sorrow Him, when when we're not living as the new man, when this corrupt communication is coming out of our mouth and all these things that He's spoken of before. It's this sense that that we grieve the Holy Spirit, but in this this way it shows us, well, as Spurgeon said, there's honey in the rock there because it shows us how tender the heart of God is towards us. Then going on more about this conduct of the new man here, verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. The, the, The new man has control of his emotions. When those things do emerge, he's able to deal with them in a manner glorifying to God. I kind of like that. He doesn't say never experience bitterness, never experience wrath or anger or clamor or evil speaking. He says, no, put them away from you. I think the idea there is when they rise up, deal with them correctly. Look, you're a human being, right? You're going to feel these things. You're going to have these emotions press in on you. It isn't the matter of whether or not you receive these emotions. The matter is what you do with them when you do experience them finally it says there in verse 32 and be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another the new man seeks to show the same kindness tender heartedness and forgiveness to others that god has shown to him you know if you would only treat others the way that god has treated you paul wouldn't have had to write what he just wrote in the last 6 or 7 verses right i mean couldn't you just bring it all right down to that you just treat other people the way God has treated you. And Paul especially applies it right here in verse 32 to the idea of forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. I think that's a challenging phrase. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Our forgiveness to others is patterned after the forgiveness of Jesus towards us. And when we think of the amazing way that God forgives us, it's shameful for us to withhold forgiveness from those who have wronged us. Now, I have to say that there are some people who read this verse and they say, "Aha, I don't have to forgive them." They read and they say, uh, "Listen, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave me." Well, listen, God demanded that I repent. God demanded that I confess my sin." God humbled me, and then I came to him, and he forgave me. So I am not going to forgive that other person until they confess, until they repent, and until they are humbled, and it it darn well better be done to my satisfaction. There are actually some people, and I must confess, at one time I used to read this verse this way. There are some of us who read this verse and think that Paul is almost putting a limit or a restriction on forgiveness, right? Whoa, don't be too forgiving. Stop for a minute. There's some of you who are too forgiving out there. You better stop. No, no, a thousand times no. Look at that verse again. I'm going to read it just from the beginning of verse 32. And be kind to one another, tender hearted forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Does the flavor of that verse in any way express a restriction on the idea of forgiveness? But you say, whoa, well, whoa! Well, well, wait, what about this idea? As God has forgiven me. Didn't God demand all these things of me before he would forgive me? Well, let's go back to this idea of God forgiving you. Just exactly how did God forgive you? What well, seems to me that God held back his anger a very long time And then he forgave you. He bore with you a long time and did not judge your sin, even when you were worthy of that judgment. It seems to me that when God forgave you, he reached out to you to woo you to himself, and he initiated the reconciliation with you, didn't he? It seems to me that God made the first move in forgiveness and reconciliation. God reached out to you to forgive you, even when you were uninterested in him. God forgave your sin, even though I think he knew that you would sin again, right? But he still forgave you. God' forgiveness, his forgiveness is so complete and glorious that he grants adoption to those who were once offenders against him. And in his forgiveness, when God came down to bearing the penalty, he bore the wrong. God reached out to you and he said, I'll forgive you, and I will bear the penalty of the wrong. Put the guilt on me. That's what God said when he forgave you. God kept reaching out to you with reconciliation again and again, even when you rejected him. And when God forgave you, he didn't put you on probation, did he? He'll say, I'll forgive you. Let's see how you do in the next two years. If you still walk with me then, then I'll forgive you. He didn't do that. God's forgiveness offered you complete restoration and honor. He loves, adopts, honors, and associates with those who once wronged him. And then God puts his trust in us after he forgave us. And he says, you come work with me as a co-laborer. I have to say, when we think of how great the forgiveness of God is, we say, oh Lord, when you say forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave us, Lord, we can only do that through the power of the Spirit. I like the way that the older King James Version puts this. It says this: it says, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. This gives us the assurance of forgiveness that it is for Christ's sake. And that's what you need to rest in: that it's for Jesus' sake that you're forgiven. And so, I don't think the matter here is that we must forgive uh, because Jesus will forgive us. We're to forgive instead because Jesus has forgiven us. We're forgiven, and therefore we are to open our hearts wide in forgiveness to other people. Well, again, we just get back to the same idea. All this is about how to live and how to walk as the new man. These verses at the end of chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. And as we come right into chapter 5, we might say that this is a very artificial chapter division right here. Because he's flowing along right in the same theme into chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, notice this. First, he tells us to to walk in the new man. Now he's telling us to walk in love. And and it's a beautiful symbol there, right? A beautiful explanation, I should say. Not a symbol, an explanation there in verse 1, where he says, be imitators of God. It's kind of interesting because um, there is a problem in theology and in Christian living when people make God or the work of Jesus Christ only an example for man. The idea is what, what Jesus did on the cross isn't so important. It's the example that he showed humanity. He showed humanity the perfect life of love and his moral teaching, and that's what the world needs to hear. Now, we reject that idea because we believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross, not his moral example, is what saves us. The the moral example of Jesus is wonderful. He fulfilled the law on our behalf, but it in itself does not save us apart from fulfilling what he did on the cross. Nevertheless, Jesus is still a moral example for us. But we recognize that his work on the cross was far greater. But yet, right here, it's very clear that we are to be imitators of God, to make God our example and our model. We can't content ourselves to compare ourselves among men. You have to take care of the ideas. It says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, As he who called you is holy, so you must be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. I want you to notice this here in verse 1. It doesn't say, Think about God. It doesn't say admire God. It doesn't say adore God. Those are all important Christian duties. But this right here is a little bit different from a call to worship or a call to honor God. This is a call to practical action. Paul here is moving beyond our inner life into the way we live out in this world. Now, would Paul say for a moment that the inner life is not important? No, no, no. He believes the inner life is very important. Matter of fact, he would say that the outer life... Is built upon the inner life. Yet at the same time, you have that beautiful inner life, the new man within you, so that it can live out in the world. We're not saved so that we can go live in a monastery somewhere and just sit and and you know live lives of just contemplation and meditation to God cut off from the world and the normal, you know, social interaction that we have. No, no, this is a, a, we could say this is a continuation of the same idea that Paul mentioned way back in chapter 4, verse 13, where he says that the extent of Christian growth is to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, we just keep going on according to this measure that we've given us, that he has given us, I should say. And so we do this, we're imitators of God as dear children. That's a wonderful phrase to put in there in verse 1. You know, children are natural imitators, aren't they? How many times have you seen that? You've seen the child stand in a posture just like the father. You've seen a child, you know, put put his arm or something like that, just like the child. You, You see that kind of thing all the time. Children are natural imitators. Well, we should act according to our nature as children of God. And we will very naturally imitate him. And as we imitate God, we become representatives of God. And so as we do that, look at the verse 2, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us. As in all things, Jesus Christ is our example. As he's loved us and given himself for us, then we're to demonstrate that same kind of self-giving love. And I think it's very interesting and significant what he says there in verse 2, how he describes the giving of Jesus as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus' giving of himself was obviously a sacrifice that pleased God the Father. And so we can also offer a pleasing sacrifice when we give ourselves in love to others. He's saying, you can lay down your life for others in a similar manner, in a similar fashion, after Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. Now, we often think that we could lay down our life in a dramatic way you know, to rescue or to show our love for other people. You know, the, the, the soldiers climb up the stairs right here. We hear their heavy boots on the stairs and they have their machine guns and they say, well, you know, we're going to shoot somebody down for being a Christian here tonight. Who's going to be the victim? You know, and we'll, well, I'll do it. You know, every one of us will die for everybody else and we're all the big hero and I'll, I'll lay down my life for Jesus Christ. And it's the big dramatic moment and all of that. But look, in many ways, that would be much easier than to do what God calls most all of us to do. And that's to lay down our life in little ways every day. Just say as if your life was worth and please understand, don't don't take this too literally. Let's just say your life was worth, you know, a thousand dollars. And it would be easy to take that thousand dollars and just lay it down in one big page. Yeah, there's my life. I'll lay it down. And what does God typically do? He says, no. Here's here's a thousand dollars worth of Five cent pieces of nickels. I want you to go out and distribute them one by one. You lay down your life that way. You say, "Well, that seems so undramatic." You know, can, can I do it the dramatic way? And God usually says, "No, you can't do it the dramatic way." I want you to lay down your life piece by piece in small ways, as it is offering a sacrifice unto the Lord. Well, many times we can learn not just by God telling us what to do but by also him telling us what not to do. And that's verses 3 and 4, the contrast to walking in love. This is the kind of conduct that's not fitting for Christians. So he told us to walk in love in verses 1 and 2. Now here is the not walking in love, verses 3 and 4. But, but fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. "...neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." Paul grouped together these ideas of sexual sin and impropriety. And he said, none of these are fitting for the saints, and and nor should they even be named among God's people. And if you take a look at this list, especially as it is in the ancient languages, we see that Paul was using a very comprehensive list of sexual sins. First, he says there in verse 3, fornication. That's the ancient Greek word porneia. Fornication is a very broad word describing sexual sin. Basically, it it describes sexual activity outside, you might say, of the marriage bed. Sexual activity outside of God's covenant of marriage. So he says fornication, which would include uh, adultery. It would include premarital sex. It would include a broad number of sexual activities that take place outside of marriage. And then next he says there in verse 3, And all uncleanness. Again, this is a very broad word. It basically just means dirty moral behavior. Somebody has a dirty mind, a dirty mouth. It just means to be sort of uh, unclean in this sense. And then he uses the word filthiness. It's really much the same as uncleanness. Paul's just basically repeating himself in different words just to drive the point home. And then finally, he says, Coarse jesting, which has the idea of inappropriate or, or dirty sexual humor. And so, Paul's point is very clear here. He goes, this broad, comprehensive list, this has no business to be named among believers. You know, every once in a while you'll have people say, well, where does the Bible say that, that premarital sex is wrong? I mean, I can see where it says adultery is wrong, but where does it say premarital sex is wrong? Well, it's really right there in the word fornication. Fornication describes sex outside of marriage. Before marriage, if you want to say after marriage, or after the marriage covenant, if we were to be ended by death or something like that, or, or outside of the marriage covenant, this is fornication. And he says simply, that the theme of this moral appeal. He isn't telling us, avoid these things so that you can be a saint. That's not the idea at all. Instead, the idea is, you are a saint, Now live in a manner fitting for a saint. This is the constant appeal of the New Testament. Be who you are in Jesus Christ. And so he says again here, verse 3, Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And this emphasis on sexual sin was appropriate. The culture of Paul's day, and in the city of Ephesus especially, was given over to sexual immorality. The, the sort of behavior that Paul says is not fitting for saints was pretty much completely approved of by the culture. Let, let me ask you, did the ancient Roman culture have a hard time with fornication? Was anybody condemning it? No. Uncleanness? No. Filthiness? No. Coarse jesting? No. Th- these were just commonplace in the culture. And so Paul says these should not even be named among the people of God. But then he goes on, verse 5, excuse me, verse um, 5, excuse me, no, verse 5, I'm sorry. But fornication and all covetous, uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Don't you find it interesting here in that verse that Paul also included the idea of covetousness along with foolish talking in this list? Doesn't it all seem out of place? Let me read the list to you again and you see what you think. Fornication, uncleanness, filthiness, Course jesting. Okay, all those go together, I can see. They all have to do with, with sexual sin in one way or another. But in the midst of that list, he throws in covetousness and foolish talking. I think he associates them because covetousness and foolish talking also have a connection with sexual sin. The desire to have something that doesn't belong to us, that's covetousness. And isn't that what happens when a person desires some kind of illicit sexual relationship? You desire something that doesn't belong to you. But then also, foolish talking or foolish speaking have also led many people into sexual sin. That actual ancient Greek phrase that's translated foolish talking, it actually means an easy turn of speech in the context it's referring to the person, and as soon as I say this, you're going to note somebody in your life. Maybe it used to be you. I hope it used to be you. But it describes the kind of person who can turn every conversation into a joke about sexual things. Usually sort of with a double entendre, you know, the double meaning thing. But you know the thing about a double entendre, it only has one meaning. I mean, that's, that's supposed to be what's funny about it. But that's the idea when he uses this term, Foolish talking. The idea is simply of the person who who can find a way to make some kind of joking, humorous remark about a sexual thing. Now, instead of all of that, look at what he says at the end of verse 4. But rather giving of thanks. Positively, the Christian is to give thanks for sex. We receive it thankfully as a gift and we enjoy sex in a way that glorifies the giver of sex, which is God himself. You know, it would be fascinating and helpful sometime to do a study just on the whole idea of biblical sexuality and what it means. But if I could just capsulize it in a paragraph, I would say this. God's purpose in giving sex is not primarily for the gratification of the individual, nor is it primarily for producing children. The primary purpose of the sexual relationship in biblical sexuality is the bonding together of husband and wife in a one-flesh relationship. Anything that contributes to the bonding together of husband and wife in the marital relationship, God says, then fine, the marriage bed is undefiled. But anything that takes away from it, God says, that's sin. And you can just go there and find the perfect logic of that as you go through and take a look at what's commanded... And what's prohibited in the Bible when it comes to sexual matters? God would just say, well, does it actually build up the unity, the strength, the bond of the one flesh relationship in marriage? If it does, then praise the Lord, you can do it. If it doesn't, then it's destructive. You see, certain expressions of sexuality are sin, not because God wants to deprive us some aspect of enjoyment. It's not like God's looking down from him, hey, that's fun, you stop doing that. Well, that, 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 that feels good. Stop it. That's not the idea at all. God says, no, 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 no. You see, the pleasure you're receiving under that principle, it's reinforcing something very negative in your life. And that's actually destructive to you. And so what you need to do is you need to have that pleasure in the context where it reinforces everything good in your life. And so it isn't that God wants to deprive us of some aspect of enjoyment, but because God wants to further the primary purpose for sex and that is bonding together the husband and the wife in the one flesh relationship. Well, what happens if people continue on in this conduct that's not fitting for Christians? Look at what Paul says here in verses 5 through 7. He says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, Paul mentioned these people in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. The fornicator, the unclean person, the covetous man. And he says, now, I want you to know, they have no inheritance in God's kingdom. If God's kingdom is alive in those people, A transformation has occurred so that they can no longer rest in the habitual practice of those things. Paul's idea in this passage might be applied out of the context in a condemning way. Maybe you've had this thought before. You go along this line of thinking, Well, you know, I've thought about committing fornication. So that means that I've fornicated in my heart. And that means that I'm guilty as someone who may have actually committed the act of fornication. And since I'm actually as guilty as that one, then I have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and and because of my thoughts about fornication. But again, that's going against the plain sense of the word of God. Paul's main emphasis here is simply to say that the new life of Jesus Christ makes a new life. If the old man is dead and a new man is there, listen, the new man lives a certain way. There is a change in the one who has become a Christian. There is a new creature who has been made in Jesus Christ. And listen, we know about the changes, right? The the, the changes may not come all at once, and the changes are not all instantaneous, but there must be some change. If you take a look at a person and uh, who was, well, you could read the list right there. They were a fornicator, they were an unclean person, and they were a covetous man. And he says, well, I prayed a prayer, now I'm born again, and there's no change in his life when it comes to fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. You have every right to say, brother, I don't think you're born again. This isn't just something that's added to your life. No, there's something that is changed within your life. As you might imagine, I like the way that Charles Spurgeon put it. He said this. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. In other words, if it's going to save my soul, it's also going to change my life. Again, we understand completely. The changes are not all immediate. They're not all at once, but there's some change there. There's some evidence of the person being a new creation. And so he speaks about this person here in these verses, the covetous man who's an idolater, And you can see the strength of his warning there at verse 6, where he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. You can't allow empty words to excuse or minimize the judgment that's going to come upon the practice of these sins. As a matter of fact, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is going to come upon the sons of disobedience and therefore do not be partakers with them. Paul just assumed that Christians will not have their lives habitually marked by fornication, by uncleanness or covetousness, but we shouldn't even have them occasionally be partakers or marked by those things. Now again, what are we saying here? Are we saying that it's impossible for a Christian to commit fornication? That it's impossible for a Christian to commit an act of uncleanness. That it's impossible for a Christian to to show covetousness in their life. No, no, we're not saying that. You and I both know it is very possible for someone who is born again by the Spirit of God to show one of those things. But if that dominates the characteristic of your life, you have to ask, where is the new man? You you talk to to people like this, people who have been in such sin maybe for a season, and, and you would hope that you'd hear the same thing from them that you said that you heard from David, right? In the Psalms where he said, when I kept my sin within me, it's like I died inside. It's like I dried up inside and I didn't have anything until I confessed and had it restored to God. Yes, I was in sin for a season, but I was miserable in it. Does the sinner say that? No. Well, he has his own misery and sin, but at least he's acting according to his own nature. It is possible for a Christian to act against their nature, But it's not right, and it can't last, and it can't be evident. He reinforces this idea, continuing on here in verse 8, where he says, "For, "...for you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret." I have to say, this is an absolutely staggering verse, what he writes there in verse 8. Do you see what he said there in verse 8? You probably read it wrong when you read it with your eyes. You probably thought he said, for you once walked in darkness. That's not what he said, is it? Look at it again. For you were once darkness. You see, Paul condemned those who practiced fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. He said, those are the sons of disobedience. And now he recognized th- that's the darkness that believers have emerged from. Now that you've emerged from that darkness, now you walk as a child of light. Again, I want you to see the theme over and over again. You're probably, I hope you're getting sick of hearing me say it. But the theme is there. You are a child of light, so live like a child of light. It's not like earn your right to become a child of light. It's not that. It says, you are one in Jesus Christ, now live like it. And so he says in a very powerful way, listen, you, you weren't not just in darkness. You were once darkness itself. And, but the, the, the converse is also true. Look, he says there in verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And doesn't that feel good? You used to be dark, now you're light. Now, now you have the shining light of God's radiance there. And instead of the corruption of the flesh, now verse 9 describes the fruit of the Spirit that you have there. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's the contrast to the walk in darkness and wrath. Goodness, righteousness, and truth should mark us because we have the Holy Spirit in our life. And because of this, we don't associate with ungodliness anymore. We have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness But rather, we expose them. Now, when we expose them, we don't do it just for the purpose of merely talking about them. Because notice what he says there in verse 12. For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. I suppose that's a temptation for some Christians, right? Well, you know, if I want to minister to the world, I really should know how bad it is. So let me sort of investigate how bad the world is. And and then I'll be really able to speak to the needs of the world. And let me explain to my Christian brothers and sisters just how bad the world is out there and you go on have explanation after explanation and pretty, no stop, these things aren't even fitting to be named among Christians. You, you can say how bad it is without telling them how bad it is. People know. You, you don't need to talk about every point here. Christians must guard against what we would call a purient interest in the works of darkness. Even in times of testimony or in the name of research. And I think it's also an interesting what Paul says here, which is very significant, as he puts it there in verse 12, he says, "And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness." Paul isn't saying, "Avoid unbelievers at every turn." Isn't that how some people read that? Oh, you're an unbeliever. I'm, get away. You know You're not clean. I'm not supposed to be around unbelievers. You might have spiritual cooties. I can't get too close to you. That's not the idea here. He didn't say, uh, have no fellowship with the unfruitful people of darkness, but with their works. And so we need to make a distinction. I think it's very possible. Sometimes I see it in the Christian world today, where Christians live in this hyper-isolation. In some places it's easier than others. You know, where I grew up in Southern California, it was actually pretty easy. You, know, you could wake up in the morning, and you could uh, watch the Christian television, and then you could get in the car and listen to the Christian radio. And then you could go get new tires for your car at the Christian Tire Shop. And then you could go eat at the Christian restaurant. And then you could go shop at the Christian bookstore and top it all off with a beautiful church service with your Christian uh, friends. And then if you wanted to, you could play a softball game with your church Christian softball team. And you could spend a whole day out and about in the community, interacting with other people, and say, praise the Lord for the fellowship. And you never got near an unbeliever all day. Now you have to say, there's something a little twisted about that, isn't it? Sure, we love the fellowship and all of that. But but we have to have some place where we are a light shining in the midst of darkness. And so we need to be very careful about this. Yes, we have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Absolutely, that's true. But listen, he said unfruitful works, not necessarily the people who are in darkness. Now, going on here, verse 13, he says, But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You see, he says, All things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. Even the things that are done in secret will be exposed. They'll be made manifest by the light of God's searching judgment. You see, this is a reason why you should avoid those unfruitful works of darkness that he just got done describing. Those unfruitful works of darkness are destined for exposure and their day will soon be over. And so it makes sense for you as a Christian to avoid those things that have no lasting value. And instead, the call to us is given very clearly here in verse 14. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead. You see, this is our participation in the light. We're given it by the resurrection that we have with Jesus Christ. He made us alive together with Christ, as he said in Ephesians 2.5. Uh, Paul quoted this, and I don't know about you, but in the way that my Bible is laid out, this is laid out almost in a verse form, because many people think that Paul was quoting from an early worship chorus that they sung in the early church to illustrate this truth of our common resurrection with Jesus Christ. So he says, awake you who sleep. I know what you're thinking about that. You're thinking, well, man, this is a great evangelistic sermon. I should preach that to some unbelievers. No, no, no. Who do you think Paul's speaking to here? He's speaking to believers. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You know, a Christian can be asleep and not know it. If you are asleep, you probably don't know it. You see, as soon as you become aware of your sleep, it's evidence that you're now awake. And this is very dangerous in the Christian world today. I think there's a lot of sleepy Christians out there. You know, a person can do a great deal while they are asleep that makes them look as if they're awake. You ever know anybody talk in their sleep? I I see some sleep-talking Christians in my day, right? They're spiritually asleep, but they can still talk the talk. We can hear things when we're asleep, can't we? Oh, I see some Christians. They can hear a sermon, but they're still spiritually asleep. You can walk when you're asleep. You can sing when you're asleep. You can think when you're asleep. You can do all those things and still be asleep. And listen, this is what we have to realize. Jesus Christ wants to wake us out of our spiritual sleep. There are some people who just live their lives in this, this condition of spiritual sleepiness. It's a great prayer to pray. Lord, wake me up. Lord, I want to be awake and alive unto you. I don't want to live my Christian life as if I'm just living some kind of fanciful dream. I don't want to sleepwalk or sleep talk through my Christian life. Lord, make me fully awake. So, continuing on this theme of walking in the light. Again, he's coming back over and over again. Walk in the light, walk in the light, walk in the light. Here, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, because this light is given to us, we should walk circumspectly. Do you know what that word means? It means to walk carefully or wisely. It's the opposite of what a fool does. A fool walks around and is not careful and is not wise. But if you walk circumspectly, you live with an awareness of the time. It's a very important idea to say, I'm going to live my life with wisdom and not as a fool. And as I do that, I will be, as he says here in verse 16, I'm going to be redeeming the time. I love this phrase. There are two ancient Greek words used for time. One has the idea of simply day upon day, hour upon hour. The other has the idea of a definite portion of time a period of time when something should happen. It's the difference between saying time and the time, right? There's a difference between the two. The idea here is of the time. It's a definite season of opportunity that Christians must redeem. You see... It's good advice to tell somebody, now listen, you got to make the most of your time. Make the most of every opportunity. Every day has 24 hours. Make the most out of it. That's good advice, right? I won't argue with it. But it's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, God has given you a strategic time. He's put you in a strategic moment. Redeem the time. Make the most of it. The idea behind redeeming the time is that you buy up opportunities like a shrewd businessman. You make every opportunity something for Jesus Christ. What a great way that is to live. You live looking for opportunities to minister Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I'm in the time. I'm going to look for opportunities to glorify Jesus Christ. I don't mean to offend anybody through the following illustration, but I think it communicates the idea. Do you ever notice how some people just have a real, you might say, a nose for a bargain? They're excellent shoppers, right? Right? And wherever they are, they can buy up the opportunity. And they have their eyes open for it all the time, right? They're, they're walking along and they're doing something else completely different. Whoa, out of the corner of the eye, there's a sale over there. Let's go take a look. And whoa, they just have, they, man, and they find it and they buy up the opportunities. Why? Because there's just something about them where they're always looking for it. They, they just have something in their eye. always looking for an opportunity to buy up something at a good price. What's the same attitude the Christians should live with, with the opportunity of glorifying Jesus Christ? I'm going to live my life looking for any opportunity, looking for any way that I can glorify my Lord. And why are we supposed to do this? Well, look, he says right here, because the days are evil. I don't have to explain that to you, right? The days are evil. I could go on and on about that, but it's plain enough. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is real wisdom. To know what the will of the Lord is. Real wisdom isn't so much knowing everything that's in an encyclopedia, everything that's, you know, in a dictionary. Look, that's smart, but that's not necessarily wise. Real wisdom is knowing what the will of the Lord is. And then we come to verse 18. If you want to walk in the light, well, what do you do? You walk in the light, then you don't walk in the darkness. You, you, you live like you're awake. You, you live like a wise person and not like a foolish person, redeeming the time. And the next we can say in verse 18, if you're walking in the light, it means you're going to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says right there in verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, in contrast with the conduct of the world, the world is out getting drunk with wine. We're to be constantly being filled with the Spirit. Paul's grammar very clearly says here, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's what he said. It indicates something very plainly, that the filling of the Holy Spirit is, is not a one-time event that we live off for the rest of our days. It's a constant filling, and asking to be filled, and a receiving of the filling by faith. Now, I would say that there's a good deal of debate among Christians if you want to use the phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some Christians are absolutely persuaded that the baptism of the Holy Spirit that you have, you have it when you're born again and that's all there is to it. Other Christians believe, no, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that you can have as a subsequent experience. And when you're born again, you're not necessarily baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a very interesting debate and I've been able to examine both sides of it and I could go on and on about it. But I want you to notice that our text here tonight does not say be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I don't even have to deal with that issue. It just says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. It very clearly says, this is not just some one-time experience that you had when you were born again. It indicates that it should be an ongoing experience. You should be filled and receiving that filling by faith. We would have to say that much of the weakness, much of the defeat, much of the lethargy in our spiritual lives can be attributed to this fact that we're not constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you really want to get technical in the ancient Greek, it also indicates two other things, this ancient Greek verb form for the phrase be filled. It also indicates that it is a passive verb. So this is not a manufactured experience, right? You can't do the cheerleader, you know, sis boom bod to get filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's something that God does for you. You can't run five laps around the church and work it up in yourself. But secondly, and this is maybe more important, the verb is not only passive, it's imperative. Do you know what that means? It means it's not an optional experience. Paul wasn't writing, hey, man, if you feel like it, then once you get some of that filling of the Holy Spirit? Paul was, no, you Be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you to do this. This is an imperative. This is a command. See here, he's making a contrast. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we have to talk much about that. Do not be drunk with wine. This is the carnal contrast to being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's being drunk. The Bible condemns drunkenness without reservation. As a matter of fact, when Paul says here in verse 18 in which is dissipation. Do you know what dissipation is? It's wastefulness. That's what he's saying. Drunkenness is wastefulness. There's an old Puritan commentator I like to read, John Trapp. And I I don't know if what he said here is going to connect with you. I thought it was funny, but there's many things that I read that I think are really humorous, but nobody else seems to. He says that, that, that... Drunkenness is a waste of resources that should be submitted to Jesus instead. And in this commentary, John Trapp writes about drinking all the three outs. And he says, drinking the ale out of the pot, the money out of the purse, and the wit out of the head. Well, okay, a few people thought it was fun. I like that one, the three outs. Well, you know, we could go to Proverbs over and over, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler over and over again. We could talk about all this. But I mean, it's just evident. Listen, if drunkenness is anything, it's a waste. But I would say this, we must not think that the only state of falling down drunk qualifies as sin. I've met some people like that in my life. They say, oh yes, you know, I'm a Christian and I drink, but I never get drunk. And then you find out what their definition of drunkenness is. Basically, anything short of being sprawled out in the gutter is not drunk to them. So also, so I'm not that, so I never, well, listen, I would say being impaired in any way by drink is sin, as well as drinking with the intention of becoming impaired, right? Isn't that just as much sin? And so it's a waste. But in contrast of all of that, we should be filled with the spirit. I want you to notice something here because this is a misconception that gets in the mind of some people. Some people think, well, here Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So somehow being filled with the Holy Spirit is like being drunk. No, no, no. Would you please read your Bible again? Paul's drawing a contrast between being drunk and being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, alcohol is a depressant. It it loosens people. Because it depresses their self-control. It depresses their wisdom. It depresses their balance. It depresses their judgment. The Holy Spirit has an exact opposite effect. The Holy Spirit is a stimulant. He moves every aspect of our being to better and more perfect performance. So Paul isn't saying that being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk. He's saying the contrast is between the two. Now, verse 19. This is another effect of the spirit-filled life. Okay, here you are. You're walking in the light, right? It, it, Paul's laying it out in all these subpoints. The new, okay, here we go. The new man, right? We started out talking to the new man, right? The new man walks in the light. Okay, we clear with that? One aspect of walking in the light is being filled with the spirit, right? Now he's going to talk to you about one aspect of the spirit-filled life. Okay, Paul, what does the spirit-filled life look like? Now he's going to tell you. Verse 19 and 20, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You you see, when we're filled with the Spirit, you're going to have a desire to worship God and to encourage other people in their worship of God. Isn't that wonderful that there's a connection between being filled with the Spirit and praise unto God? Those who are filled with the Spirit will naturally want to praise God. And praise is a way that we're filled with the Spirit. Could you even think of it? Some are saying, oh, I'm so filled with the Holy Spirit that I could never worship God. You just can't say that, can you? Right? You just know if a person is filled with the Spirit of God, praise comes easily. But it's interesting, isn't it fascinating, that praise is often also a gateway to being filled with the Spirit of God. And in the midst of this, all he says here in verses 19 and 20, he says, singing psalms, psalms, and I'll get it right psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know what I like about this different listing? It's not a technical listing. I heard some people, I think they apply this list far too technically. They say, well, you know, in our worship set tonight, uh, we should have two psalms, two hymns, and two spiritual songs, and you know, making a hard and fast to sing. I don't think that's the idea. I, I think he's just trying to suggest a variety that, that indicates that God delights in a creative, spontaneous worship. You see, the, the most important place of melody for us to have, did you like what he said there in verse 19? Making melody in your heart to the Lord. You know, a lot of people who can't sing very well can make beautiful melody in their heart to the Lord. And this is what he's emphasizing here: is variety in it. I think that spirit anointed worship is not going to be same, the same all the time. You know, if it's the same all the time, I don't think it's led by the Spirit. There's going to be a variety, a spontaneity, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is filled with the Spirit will also be filled with thanksgiving. A complaining heart and the Holy Spirit just don't go together. Just doesn't. Listen, I just have to say, you can't find the two, right? I'm so filled with the Spirit, let me complain a lot right now. You can't even imagine it, right? No, if you're filled with the Spirit, you're also going to be filled with gratitude. All right, so what do we see here? We're walking in the light, right? Excuse me, no, let's go back further. We're walking in the new man. We put on the new man. And the new man walks in the light. And one aspect of walking in the light is being filled with the Spirit. And, and how do you know that you're filled with the Spirit? Well, because your, your life is filled with this praise, with this adoration. And then what's the other indication that you're filled with the Spirit? It's right there in verse 21, which is going to be the last verse that we look at for tonight, where he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. When we are filled with the Spirit, it will show by our mutual submission to each other, and submission will be done in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. No, Christian submission is, oh, I'm so afraid of you, I must submit to you. Christian submission is, I fear God. And God has put you in a position of authority, so I am going to submit to you. Now we need to spend just a little bit of time tonight talking about this word submission, because it's going to become a very important word when we come into the text next week. But what does he say here? He says, submitting. The ancient Greek word that's translated submitting here literally means to be under rank. It's a military word. It it speaks of the way that an army is organized among levels of ranks. You have generals and colonels and majors and captains and sergeants and privates. There's levels of rank, and you are obligated to respect those who are in a higher rank. Okay, so picture in your mind just for a moment, you, you have a private and you have a general. Okay, these two men, right? Now, you know something very well, don't you? You know that the private can be smarter than the general. The private can be more talented than the general. The private can be a man of greater character than the general. But you know what? He's still under rank with the the general. When the general comes by, the private has to salute the general. Because he's under rank. He isn't submitted to the general so much as a person as he is submitted to the general as a general. And so the idea of submission doesn't have anything to do with someone being smarter or better or more talented. It has to do with God's appointed order. And so this also gives us an idea of how important it is for us to exercise this submission that Paul speaks about, that we're to be under rank. You see, in the military, they have a name for it when you no longer want to be under rank. You know what they call it? They call it mutiny. And just as an army would be in utter confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society, no, not just the church, society as a whole, it would be under confusion if there were no ranks of authority. And so what does Paul say? Okay, understanding that, look again at verse 21, because this gets a little confusing to be quite honest. He says, submitting to one another. Now, what does he mean, submitting to one another? Now, Because if he's telling us to exercise a general submission to one another, well, what's our rank then? You know what I mean? If we're applying this military idea, then how does that work? Well, I think to understand what this means, we can first examine what it does not mean. It does not mean that there is no rank in the body of Christ. That You could see how someone might get that impression. They would say, listen, it all says that we should be submitting to one another. So I should be submitting to you, and you should be submitting to me, and no one has any more obligation to submit than any other person. I can tell you, I know that's not what Paul means. Do you know why? Because if it was, he would be in clear contradiction with what he has written in other places. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 1 through 5, Paul clearly told the Corinthian Christians to submit to his authority and to do something. Well, can you imagine the Corinthians answering back to the Apostle Paul? Well, Paul, you know what? You wrote that we should be submitting to one another, so we think you should submit to us on this. I think Paul would have went up in his apostolic authority and knocked some heads together if they would have said that. No, I mean, Paul recognized that there actually were... Ranks, orders, levels of some kind of authority in the Christian church. So when Paul says submitting to one another, he's not trying to say, oh no, wipe away every idea of any kind of rank or order of authority in the church. Another example of this is in Hebrews 3.17, or excuse me, 13.17, where the writer of the Hebrews says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Now, if Paul meant here that there were to be no rank or no order of authority among believers, then the commandment in Hebrews 13, 7, it's meaningless. You see, the idea of this military word is more easily applied when one rank is above another, right? When you have the private and then you have the general. But here, Paul isn't really using it in that way. It's more easily applied when you tell a bunch of privates, okay, submit to the general, but but it's a little more difficult when you get a hold of a group of privates and you say to them, submit to one another. Paul isn't emphasizing the idea of rank because he's addressing all Christians as a whole. But really what he's doing is he's saying, take that under-rank attitude and apply it to your everyday dealing one with another. Now the military metaphor fits us just fine here. What happens when a man joins the military? The first thing they do is they strip away his individuality. Look, not that I would ever know, but I've seen enough movies about guys entering the army that I think I know (laughs) what it's like. Right? You're no longer an individual. Now you are a member of a company or a battalion. You're an individual no longer. You join the army, and essentially you sign away your right to decide what you're going to do with your life and your time. Right? When you join the army, do you say, well, you know, I think I might eat about 7 o'clock tonight. i kind of like to have a late dinner. Do you have to do that, that way in the army? No. You say, well, you know, I think I might like to wear my three-piece suit today. I really like to wear those clothes. Does it work that way? No. You say, you know, I think I'll grow my hair out of that mullet I've always wanted it to be. Does it work that way? No. They say, no, we're going to tell you how to cut your hair. We're going to tell you what to wear. We're going to tell you when to get up. They, they They do all this very deliberately to say... Look, you are an individual, but you can't be individualistic. Therefore, in practical action, when Paul says submitting to one another, it's like he's speaking to us all in general in the body of Christ, and he says, be a team player. You're all together on this. You, you, you shouldn't be thoughtless. You should think of other people. You, you shouldn't be individualistic. You you must not be self-assertive. You mustn't be self-seeking. You must have a team attitude. You you should be happy when somebody else succeeds or does well. You, You have to bear your own discomforts and your own trials with courage because you're part of a team. We're all part of a team. Let's have that attitude of submission and being under rank one to another. And then I have to say, this is a very important point he brings up here in verse 21. He says, in the fear of God. It's a very important point because Paul repeats this idea through the extended section speaking about submission. See, right up here in verse 21, he's brought up the idea of submission, right? He says, hey, body of Christ, have a team attitude, one with another, right? You're in a team. This is a mark of walking in the Spirit. Why did I say excessive individualism is a mark that you're not walking in the Spirit, right? If being a team player with the body of Christ is a mark of walking in the Spirit, then excessive individualism is a mark of not walking in the Spirit. So he says, listen, be a team player, submitting to one another in the fear of God, all of this, and then, now he's going to go on, we'll see this next week, he goes, wives, you've got a special place of submission in your life. Oh oh yeah, and let me say something to the husbands as well. Um, Children, you've got a special place of submission in your life, Oh, yeah, and let me say something to the parents as well. Um, bond servants, you have a special place of submission in your life. Oh, yeah, let me say something to your masters as well. You see, he's just going to work out this idea that he has introduced. But what I want you to understand this is that the words in the fear of God describe what our motive is for submitting to one another. Why do we why should I submit to you? It isn't because well, you have to prove yourself better than me or smarter or a greater character or any of those things. No, no, no. It's because I no longer see myself in an individualistic way. I see myself as a member of a unity of the body of Christ. Out of respect for God the Father and out of respect for Jesus Christ, I'm going to be a team player. The motive for our submission, one to another, it's not social kindness. The motive for our submission is not the law of God. The motive for our submission is respect for Jesus Christ. If you respect Jesus, then you should submit, you should have this team attitude among believers out of fear and love for Jesus. He uses the word fear, but it's a fear, a respect that's compatible with love. You don't want to disappoint Jesus. And so this is all an aspect of living, of being filled with the Spirit. So let's just recap. We have this great responsibility to live like the new man. Live out the new man. The new man walks in love. The new man walks in the light. And then the new man also, as an expression of walking in the light, he is also filled with the Spirit. As he's filled in the Spirit, it's going to show itself in worship and praise, and it's going to show itself in this attitude of mutual submission, of being a team player one with another. And then we're going to see in the next step how this whole idea of mutual submission works out in specific applications in the marriage, in the parent-child relationship, and in the employer-employee relationship as we come to the text next week. Yeah, but I think we have quite enough for ourselves to think about tonight. It's a good text to sit down before you go to bed and read it over again and see what the Holy Spirit would speak to you, is it not? Because it's easy to preach on a text like this surely the Holy Spirit has spoken to each one of us on several points tonight. You know, surely we could come and on any one of these verses we could spend two or three weeks examining all of its ramifications. So there's a lot to digest. We should be like good cows eating the grass, right? Chew the cud over and over again. Let it fully digest and the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts about the application of it. Father, that is our prayer. We thank you that You've given us this ability, this gift to be able to, uh, well, Lord, to receive this new life in Jesus Christ by, by faith in him, Lord. It's all according to your grace. It's all according to your goodness, and we thank you for it. And so, Jesus, tonight we pray that you really would help us to walk in the light, to be forgiving to one another, Lord, to put on the new man, to have our lives filled with the light of your love and of your holiness, Lord, and not with the impurities of this world. Father, we pray that you would challenge us on points of compromise in our life. And that you'd speak to us very powerfully about these things. But Lord, at the same time, we need to be filled with your Spirit. And we want to see the effects of that filling of the Spirit in our life. Give us that true joy in worship and in honoring you. And Father, as well, we pray that you would just fill our hearts with this team attitude, Lord. With this attitude of mutual submission. We want to do it for Jesus' sake, Lord. In the fear of Christ, we want to give this to you. That's our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.